0: Welcome to AJHP Voices, a series of discussions with AJHP authors and interviews focused on contemporary practice issues. AJHP is the official journal of ASHP, and its mission is to advance science, pharmacy practice, and health outcomes.
1: Hi, this is Daniel Koba, the editor-in-chief of HHP. Thanks for joining us in this episode of HHP Voices. Today, we'll be discussing the 2023 Pharmacy Forecast Report, which was recently published on HHP.org. Our guests are Dr. Francesca Cunningham, Associate Chief Consultant, PBM, and Director, VA Center for Medication Safety, Department of Veterans Affairs, Dr. Joseph DePiro, Professor and Associate Vice President for Health Sciences at the Virginia Commonwealth University, and Dr. Scott Nelson, Associate Professor, Vanderbilt University Medical Center. Thanks for joining us.
0: Happy New Year. Thanks for having us. This is great.
1: Joe, I'm going to start with you and and ask you as the editor and from that 30,000-foot perch that you have as the editor of the report to... To
0: describe the overall focus of the 2023 pharmacy forecast report. Yeah, sure, Dan. You know, we look over the last few years of editions of the forecast, something becomes obvious. We've gone well beyond the typical operational issues, financial issues, clinical issues that pharmacists face in health system, onto a, a range of other uh, quite a wide span of topics that we see with us today and likely to be with us in the years ahead. It's no surprise to any of us that COVID-19 pandemic and its challenges were front and center, and that included some issues such as emergency preparedness, cybersecurity, supply chain, succession planning, and even substance use disorder. So all that came into the, the forecast this year. Just related to COVID experience, there was also a loss of trust and public health authorities. And so this was one of our major topics. Now, health disparities has been a part of past forecast editions, and it's here again. And mainly because the gaps seem to be expanding. Some of the other topic areas that were included patient centric healthcare delivery, and think about the pharmacy or the hospital without walls, the hospital at home, and even telehealth. Also include the roles of technology in future healthcare, AI and clinical decision support tools all came into the report. And then finally, uh, workforce, such important issues as strengthening the workforce through planning and opti- optimization. So, so if anything, again, Dan, the, the range of topics just expanded beyond uh, what it had been in recognition that all these are important in, in how we care for patients.
1: Got it, Joe. And and we're going to get into some of those specific recommendations. But I'm going to ask you your impression on one thing. ASHP and the ASHP Foundation are not the only ones that publish a forecast. But And you, I know, have had a chance to look at other types of forecasting reports. Do you have a sense of where we fall in terms of the, the topics that are covered here and how we compare to maybe some of these other forecasting uh, instruments that are out there?
0: And I've I've seen a few of these kind of forecasting reports that come from other organizations. I've, I'm trying to call if it was uh, AHA or AMA, but we seem to be all contending with the same uncertain world. And so it's helpful to see how they're viewing it, what's on their radar screen, and what we're finding is uh, we're we're all dealing with this big set of issues.
1: You know, that's a perfect segue. A big set of issues, Fran. This year's report contained a chapter entitled Regaining Trust in Public Health. Why is that?
2: I think it's because over the last several years, really the last decade, there has been a decline in the trust in public health overall. And especially with the pandemic, with the COVID-19 pandemic, this appeared to escalate. And I think this has happened. Well, I know this has happened before in times in the past with the pandemic, with the influenza pandemic in 1918, with the bubonic plague outbreak in Northern California in the early 1900s. We saw the same type of distrust in public health. And I think part of it is fear. Part of it is not knowing. And the other may be trying to fill in the gaps when you're not being told specifics. We're kind of living in a gray area, so to speak, during the pandemic, both from how the disease was originating, treatments, etc. And I think all that kind of really led to this increase in public health that we're experiencing as of late.
1: And so what were some of the key findings uh, that were from the survey questions that were asked in trust in public health from the 2023 report?
2: Well, I think a part of it, well, looking at trust in and of itself, a large amount of the distrust was because of medical misinformation and medical disinformation. And so that has been extremely prevalent in, you know, during the past couple of years. And so one of the questions that we really wanted to look at was, will health health systems invest in systematic effort of programs to regain consumer trust based on scientific evidence and healthcare professionals? And our forecast, what we realized is that 61 percent of the of responders thought that we would gain uh, trust in public health. We would be prepared over time, that healthcare systems would be because we needed to make an investment in this area. And so that was a part of the survey that I was really excited to see and to read, kind of looking more and reading a bit more and experiencing i knew we were prepared but it was good to see that the respondents did as well i think another area that we focused on and there were several areas but i think another area that became very uh, relevant or for me was looking at healthcare professionals that disseminate misinformation And if they are the people that our patients are seeing, how do we minimize that? You know, that that can be or that has been a very difficult area to get a handle on. And it's an area we need to address. And with our responders, they stated or they identified that that is a problem. So we wanted to see specifically what would happen from a professional licensing standpoint. I think one of the biggest areas that I wanted to pinpoint was that of state health professionals' licensing boards will develop and exercise regulations to discipline professionals that spread medical misinformation. And when asking that question to our responders, we realized that 42% said that it's unlikely that that will occur and that we as a healthcare system are not prepared. And so it's something we really need to address from a licensing standpoint, and I think need to be aware of and, and if it's not occurring, how do we make sure that our medical professionals are responsible for providing the correct information and, and ensure that there is some discipline when they don't? And so I thought that was another very big area that, that was very pertinent from my standpoint. And then I think another area that I thought was very important was how do you meet people? How do we meet our patients where they are? And as pharmacists and as healthcare systems, I think that that's a very important area. So, how does a healthcare system meet? Or will they meet patients where they are? And and it was interesting, again, looking at our responders. And they said the 75% of health systems will execute strategies to ensure accurate health information is conveyed by its providers. 65% of our responders thought that that was likely and we would be prepared. A large percentage thought we would be prepared. So I thought that was important. And so the next thing would be the how do we do that would be something that we would need to focus on.
1: So, Fran, going to your point about meeting patients where they are, it seems to me that in this forecast report, there were a lot of intersections, and it seems there was another chapter on disparities, and I think it's fair to reach the conclusion that meeting people where they are comes into play in addressing disparities as well. Is is that a fair
2: take? I would say you're spot on. I think that's a very fair take. And I think that's important to figure out how to make that connection. And I think that there there needs to be more of a direct connection with communities, uh, with healthcare systems, reaching out and connecting with communities, connecting with regulatory bodies so they can disseminate the information in the communities appropriately and specifically so that there's not a disconnect when a A patient is hearing something somewhere and then coming to us or coming to a health system and then realizing they may be hearing it somewhere else. And so I think that community liaison and outreach is paramount. And how do you meet people in the middle or where they are in there? I think. A community pharmacy where they may be going to get their medications in addition to their vaccinations and seeing schools where there's outreach that can happen in schools, community centers, wherever you can kind of integrate appropriate health care, appropriate medical information, especially in times like these, it is very important churches. So I think that community liaison, that community connection, and that becomes very important when you're looking at disparities in uh, care. You want to make sure that your outreach is, is to the appropriate population, that you are articulating what needs to be heard in the format and in context in which people are used to hearing and communicating. So I think that's very important.
1: So with the findings of the the survey findings in mind, you and your co-author Dr. Pamela Schweitzer had a number of recommendations. What are some of the, what were some of the key recommendations that you included related to trust in public health?
2: Okay, well, we had several, and I'll go through a few. I think one of the main ones is that health systems need to strengthen their partnerships. Um, and I can think I just touched on that a minute ago. Strengthen their t- partnerships between local, state, and federal health programs in order to develop or expand public health programs to address health misinformation. That's very important, especially based on what we've seen recently. That health systems should ensure that providers have access to -to up-to-date public health recommendations related to medical information. If you recall, when I first started discussing misinformation, I discussed that misinformation can occur because of gray areas and because of not knowing. And As soon as we know information, because information is is evolving, then that information needs to be readily available for the public and accessible in different platforms so that we can make sure that we are getting to the public with the information that's needed in a timely fashion And, and, again, where they are, through social media, through other platforms, but to get that information out so that the misinformation is not there. Another pertinent point was that healthcare systems should implement programs to rapidly identify medical misinformation and enforce grounds of discipline when promoted or disseminated by providers and other health system employees that... We know that some of the misinformation that we have heard recently throughout this pandemic has occurred through professionals, and so there does need to be a way to directly counter that and then to for some discipline to be um, provided where it can be. And I think another is that healthcare systems must proactively address patient concerns. We need to make sure that we understand and hear the patient if there is and where there is medical misinformation and devise better methods to engage patients. That becomes very important. And at the same time, listening to those patients that really have a grievance for whatever reason, and there needs to be a way for formal grievances to be processed and they should be standardized and easy for patients to access or address a provider uh, when this occurs.
1: Thanks, Fran. It's really for touching on some critical issues and something that is certainly a difficult issue to to get your hands around and I think is going to take a concerted effort by the entire healthcare team, the entire system, and to really to try to reverse some of this trend away from trust in public health officials. I appreciate those perspectives. Scott, turning to you, at this point, you were the author of a chapter entitled Reliance on Technology, Opportunity, and Risk. The technology, this year was the first year that we had a chapter on trust. But technology has been in the forecast report numerous times over its life. But again, this year there were some. There continue to be almost every year new issues that need to be addressed. And can you talk about what some of the key findings were from the survey items related to technology this this year? Where you focused and what you found?
3: Yeah, for sure. So in the Technology section, we kind of had like technology is ubiquitous in everything we do. And so it was easy to see how the technology would relate to other components of the survey. And having this kind of trust in the technology is kind of like how we have an over reliance on our clinical decision support. And then we need to make sure that we are prepared for times where maybe that would go away for like a downtime or something and be able to provide high quality care for our patients. Another theme that has really been uh, top of mind is artificial intelligence and how do we actually start to use that and leverage it in healthcare? care? Um, how prepared are we as a profession or organizations on using or leveraging the capabilities of AI? and then how that would also play into advanced clinical decision support and not just looking at the technology aspect of it, but also the pharmacy practice and people aspect of a lot of these things.
1: Scott, when you look at the results of the survey itself and the questions that were posed to the the panelists for the survey, were there responses that jumped out at you? Were there things that surprised you in terms of if it was the preparedness for a cyber attack or the, the role of AI? Were there responses from the panelists that that struck you?
3: Yeah, I would say so. One of the questions that we asked was what percentage of people believe that at least half of the U.S. health systems would experience an extended downtime due to a cyber attack in the next five years? And nearly 60% of our forecast panelists said that that was likely. And that just kind of almost like sends shivers down my spine about the importance of cybersecurity. And with our reliance on technology for clinical decision support and all the other functions that it provides, just the need to make sure that we have safe and secure systems, that we are using best practices for cybersecurity and so on. So that was one that really kind of struck me. Also, some uh, discussion around cyber attacks producing a supply chain shortage. And many panelists didn't feel like that they would be prepared for that, although they felt like it would be really likely to happen. Another spot was with artificial intelligence. So there has been a lot of discussion recently with the FDA and software as a medical device kind of stuff, and AI kind of falls into that piece. But um, 73% of our forecast panelists believed that they are going to be required to do validation and safety of AI algorithms and technology at their institution, regardless kind of what the FDA does, which makes a lot of sense because a lot of times these technologies can be very specific. but. Very, only 37% of forecast panelists said that they were prepared to do any type of evaluation on AI systems.
1: Well, Scott, you've given me a, a number of places to go here with follow-up questions that I want to ask you based on some of those findings. And, and the first that I would go to, and you've, you've written on this in other articles in HHP in the ASHP guideline on the role of artificial intelligence in pharmacy practice. What are some of the risks if to AI, if the, the fit is not precise enough, what are some of the risks to patient safety?
3: Yeah, great question. And when we look at artificial intelligence and compared to like human intelligence, computers are really terrible at common sense and context. And so there's kind of some of these potential obvious errors that somebody would pick up on um, that could have come through or pass through. Um, an AI algorithm. And right now, it seems like there is a lot of hype and hope on artificial intelligence and its role in doing all these fantastic things and diagnosing things and curing cancer and all sorts of other stuff. But really kind of one of the things that we put in our recommendation was to try to focus on those more mundane and low risk kind of tasks, um, that those could be really great applications of artificial intelligence and helping to try to clear some of that sludge out of the responsibilities of our clinicians of having to do all those administrative tasks and um, other lower um, time-consuming things that could easily be done by uh, artificial intelligence, but at the same time are low enough risk so that if those common sense kinds of errors get through that they could be caught or identified or propose or pose a low risk to the patient.
1: So, Fran, I'd like to turn to you for a moment. You have responsibility for medication safety in the VA healthcare system, a major role in that. And when you think about AI and medication use, is that something that keeps you up at night from a safety perspective?
2: it does in some instances and again it's because of some some of the uh, items that Scott Mentioned uh, a little while ago, and and what AI doesn't do is some of the simplistic, some of the common sense areas, things that should be easily um, can be easily identified by by human assessing. And if we become so dependent and we don't have checks and balances embedded, we are at risk for certain mistakes or for certain applying or utilizing medications in areas where we shouldn't use it, not adequately identifying the appropriate adverse event. Because we were looking for something else, or, or AI picked it up, but we should have been looking for something else. So, I think it's important as we're using AI, so that we're training it appropriately, and that that becomes something I think that's paramount is um, is ensuring that it's being developed, that it's being trained appropriately for the areas in which we'll be using it. Scott,
1: earlier I talked about some of the intersections in the forecast report, and one of the areas is we talked a few minutes ago, there's a a chapter on disparities. And it seems that there really is an intersection between the disparities chapter and AI and AI. Can you talk about how AI can actually exacerbate disparities? Yeah, it's a really interesting thing. AI could exacerbate
3: disparities. It could also help try to equalize them out. So it really depends on how it is designed and leveraged as far as the risk of increasing disparities the ai models are really only as good as the data that that is they are used to train on and um, our historic data is full of our own internal biases as um, human beings and the systematic kind of racism and other disparities that we have created as a culture Are still in the data. And so if we train models on data that that have those um, disparities or biases in them, then we're going to result with biased models. There are some things that can be done to help reduce that risk and like other kinds of validation and things. But one of the nice things also with AI is that it has the potential to reduce those biases because it doesn't have those subconscious Kind of um, biases that we have as human beings
1: so did you have a specific recommendation in this year's report related specifically to the use of AI and the the risks of disparities or actually the the potential to minimize disparities were there was there a recommendation related to that?
3: Not specifically on the disparities. And part of that is because there is a lot of overlap, like you said, with the other chapters. Um, So we try to focus on those things that were very technology specific. However, we did say um, that there is an importance in identifying a data science group to work with in order to help validate and evaluate uh, AI models and working also with informatics teams for implementation, which is its own, discipline and science uh, separate from the data science, and then evaluating to see if those kinds of uh, biases are going to exist in the model results uh, as part of that kind of evaluation.
1: Got it. What were some of the other recommendations, Scott, in your chapter related to technology?
3: Yeah, for sure. So with the concern on cybersecurity, that was one of the things that was top of mind for a lot of people uh, that we spoke to. And we said that there's a lot of effort that healthcare systems put into cybersecurity. And so we should all kind of participate in um, being part of that. But additionally, preparing for prolonged downtime through planning and testing and drills so that people are prepared that if there is a prolonged downtime, we're able to handle all parts of the medication use process. For example, there was a downtime that I heard of where their prescribers like, didn't even know how to write an order and because of computerized provider order entry and all the clinical decision support. So they had to go educate people like this is a complete order. This is what you need. So we want to be prepared for those kinds of things.
1: Scott, when you, when you talk about prolonged downtime, what are we talking about in terms of hours or days, or is it even beyond that? Days or
3: weeks, there have been some that have been like more than that. Yeah. Got it. We also recommended that Key staff are trained or at least familiar with artificial intelligence and some of its concepts and principles, some of the strengths and weaknesses, to just be better informed in helping prioritize efforts for leveraging AI in practice. And kind of along those lines, establishing some sort of governance or some sort of group that can oversee the approval or the prioritization of those AI projects. Then working with a data science team and pharmacy informatics teams for evaluating and implementing artificial intelligence and advanced clinical decision support solutions.
1: So, Joe, I'm going to turn back to you for a moment and uh, a couple of items I want to bring up. But starting actually with AI, and it seems to me that Scott talked about education of practitioners, but is it fair to say that? given where we're going, we're going to need to start even earlier and that our pharmacy students, our residents are are really going to need to develop some level of, if not understanding, or maybe I should say, it, if not expertise, at least understanding of the role of AI in uh, healthcare?
0: Dan, no question about it. And I think well beyond just a general superficial knowledge, but we're going to need to have people who really understand it and can get into the weeds and make it work effectively for our systems and our patients. So how we do that is is going to be a challenge because uh, you know we've got to have people who are actively working in the area who can then serve as role models and instructors and get our students up to speed. So I think it's it's got to happen over a few years, but we have to be committed to it. And
1: that's sort of a challenge when there are also uh, a wide variety of workforce issues uh, that we're, we're confronting. And that's where I'm going to shift to a bit. There was a chapter, Joe, on workforce planning and optimization. And I'm wondering if you could just give us some highlights of that chapter and and why it was so important to include in the 2023 report.
0: Sure. So even though there was a chapter on workforce, workforce appeared in most of the other chapters. And so demonstrating how dependent for all we do on a a strong workforce and the the issues in the report span from high-level administration to pharmacists, pharmacy technicians, and even pharmacy students, and and their issues at each of those levels relates to things like succession planning, employee wellness, as as well as diversity. So some of the findings that I thought were uh, quite interesting, and we saw in the survey results that most of the respondents thought it was likely that 25% of seasoned pharmacy leaders would leave their positions early. So whether you'd say this is part of the great resignation or not, it's it's out there. The panel was split on whether pharmacy enterprise leadership vacancies would uh, lead to non-pharmacists being appointed in these positions. So we could debate the the ups and downs of that. The other, another overwhelming finding from the report is that highly likely that pharmacy departments will be required to perform cross-functional duties and that might be duties that are usually performed by other health professionals. We, we know that uh, what's going on in the pharmacy workforce is also influenced to a large degree by what's happening in nursing and medicine and with the other health professions as well. The other thing that came through is clearly supportive employees will be more important in the years ahead. So Again, the overwhelming majority of respondents thought it was likely that health systems will expand programs that support employee behavioral health. You know, we've had been in the space of uh, supporting employee health in general, but recognizing the accentuated need for support and behavioral health came through. The just a couple of other points, 61% of the respondents thought it was likely that health system leadership and workforce would be representative of the community it serves. So that leaves a pretty good gap in there of uh, the challenge for uh, workforce diversity. And then one other point that was overwhelming, 95% of panelists reported it likely that healthcare organizations will, will implement enhanced recruitment initiatives to attract and retain talent. So We've got to do a better job of it and think of innovative ways to address employee well-being.
1: So, Joe, on that note of attracting and retaining talent, I'm interested in your perspectives on, on the pipeline of up-and-coming pharmacists. Uh, enrollments have been down. Uh, do you think they're going to stay down, or is this just, a, is this just a, a, a point on the curve, on a curve?
0: No, it's a long standing problem. You know, applications to pharmacy school have been dropping over the last 12 years. And we're at a point now where the, uh, the classes that are in pharmacy school, the numbers are, are in there already. We are going to see a 25%, 20, 25% decrease in the number of graduates over the next few years. This may be the last uh, relatively large class that graduates. And so there's going to be enhanced competition for uh pharmacists into the workforce. I think health system has a lot of health systems have a lot of attractive positions that will will get the interest of graduates, but it's gonna be competing with other sectors, managed care, obviously community pharmacy and, and uh pharmaceutical industry for for graduates. So um that's gonna have an impact in a lot of ways, including on residency programs and applicants to residency programs. We all know there's a severe shortage of pharmacy technicians, and this is impacting the pharmacy school entering cohort as well, because a high percentage of students who come into pharmacy have been technicians, or they got introduced to pharmacy as technicians. And so with the crunch in the technician workforce, this is going to impact pharmacy school enrollment as well. It sounds like we have a a long road ahead of us still. Before we wrap up,
1: I want to actually just turn to one other topic, and that is really the use of the report, the practical use of the the pharmacy forecast report. And Joe, in your introduction, you discussed the role of the report in strategic planning.
0: Has that evolved at all, especially in context of the pandemic? And mostly in the, the way that we think about strategic planning, long gone are the days where you could do a five-year plan and then follow that and expect to stay on that path. So we know that strategic planning has got to be more dynamic, more open to rapid change. And and so uh, even if, if it's a yearly or more frequently that we're having to re-examine the plans and the goals and hopefully the forecast will help our institutions prioritize amongst their plans. Uh, and, and so it's not that necessarily that something was important comes off the plan, but w- what do we do next? What, where do we, with a limited time and effort that we have, where do we put our efforts? And so it can help with that, making sure that we have some important developments on our radar screen. We certainly can't predict everything that's out there in the future for us And so we think that by actively engaging in planning and using results from the forecast that we can help develop some resiliency and redundancy so that we're better able to address some of the unplanned events that are out there in our future. Got it. Fran,
1: what about at a national level? You have the opportunity to really look across one healthcare system that has a national presence, but where do you see the forecast being used at the national level?
2: I think, again, to kind of piggyback on what Joe said, it's a perfect tool to use for any organization for strategic planning purposes or just specific areas of interest that have been identified in the report that can be used as a template to help kind of help systems or help programs at a national level, not reinvent the wheel, and to kind of see Some of the background information that was presented and and some of the the key points that are identified in the report for the given chapters. So I think uh, utilizing it for strategic planning utilizing it for, and in in different areas, utilize just kind of reading and and evaluating and identifying some of the information that was captured, especially in workforce. Another area, again, would be in the disparities from our stand and equity. There are a lot of good points that were identified there and kind of marrying that with areas that were mentioned from the uh, technology area. You know, how can we adapt that? A lot of that information is embedded in this report. And It's just excellent for leadership from our standpoint, from our national leadership to, to kind of look at that. And I could see that in other national systems to utilize the report to kind of get an overview and then figure out how best it can be disseminated down, down the pipeline and understanding that it can be used in individual facilities as well. But I think at a national level, it gives an overview and it allows you to, to kind of get a handle in, and a head start on how to implement a lot of these areas that were discussed in the various chapters.
1: And Scott, what about at Vanderbilt? How's it used there? We use it for strategic planning. Um,
3: If anything, it's a really great discussion point of bringing up some topics for discussion and consideration as we do planning and prepare for the future. It's also a great opportunity to have some documentation or evidence to
1: help support initiatives going forward. And that's all the time we have today. I want to thank Dr. Francesca Cunningham, Dr. Joe DePiro, and Dr. Scott Nelson for joining us to discuss the 2023 Pharmacy Forecast Report, which was recently published on HHP.org and in the January 15th, 2023 issue of HHP. Please join us here each month for discussions on contemporary pharmacy practice issues and interviews with AJHP authors. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with your colleagues and via your social media of choice.
0: Thank you for listening to AJHP Voices. For more information about AJHP, the premier source for impactful, relevant, and cutting-edge professional and scientific content that drives optimal medication use and health outcomes please visit
2: AJHP.org.